So welcome back. For the past three classes, we've been learning and practicing concentration techniques and their and sort of relational impact, particularly our relationship with ourself. Um, the first class focused on embodied practice and the second class focused on perceptions. And last week we focused on emotions. So I wondered if there's anything you'd like to share about your experience practicing with any of these techniques so far, or any questions you have about any of them uh, as we've been practicing them and exploring them together. So just raise your hand if there's something that you wanted to share with us or ask. Maria. Hi. Yeah, um, I've been uh, playing with some of the meditation um, techniques that you offered and also um, the, uh, you know, when how emotions and thought how our emotions are triggered and brought in. And for me, I think a great time for me to explore this is first thing in the morning when I wake up mm. and I have this, this real peacefulness mm. and then the thoughts come in. And then really, but instead of like kind of doing my other stuff that I do to kind of you know, keep them a bit, I kind of let them in and just noticing the vibrations in my body and how it changes the state of my body as each thought creeps in and how quickly I can get quite overwhelmed first thing in the morning if I kind of don't just stay with the bodily sensations, mm -hmm. which are, and it's amazing how peace, that first gap where everything's peaceful and then, and then the thoughts come in and trigger the body into lots of different vibration so then i brought in like the meditation technique that you talked about where the um where the waves are all on the top and you mm -hmm. float down and it was so lovely to just do that to just float under the waves and just not let go of everything but it's just still all there and just to, just to be in that that space underneath and really just feel the the peacefulness of that and then it's all been taken care of up above. I don't need to do anything. It's all on the waves crashing around, but I don't need to attend to that. I can just stay down here. And, and that was really nice to do that. Mm -hmm. You're so right that we're, um, you know, we awaken into this kind of spaciousness. There's just a moment there. And then the thoughts start rushing in and the feelings start rising and there's so much to do today. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get everything done. And, you know, um, this person I have to talk to, I'm not really sure how that's going to go. And um, we start right in right away. Yeah. So it's good that you're able to return to the body and what the body is, uh, is sensing. Uh, as and I noticed because I was actively doing that, you know, when you pay more attention to doing that, then you yeah. pay more attention to what you're doing in relationship with people. Like my mom can be quite angry and fast and manic, and it can be quite easy to get caught up in her, in her vibrations. And I can feel it. And I feel myself giving myself that pause and just stopping and, and just giving it space so that I can respond differently. And I notice how calm I become the angrier my mom becomes, or if someone's really manic, like my niece was really, kind of caught up in a lot of um, anxiety this week and and how I become really calm when you know she gets really anxious and then that kind of noticing her coming down into more of a calmness in response to to the you know like the, the our limbic resonance is sort of becoming more equal yeah you know, and rather so it's, than... it's different if you join her in her anxiety or if you help her settle into your equanimity and ease 
um, we, we are um, regulating each other all the time. So uh, practice is what makes us intentional about whether we are going to join the person in their, whatever their experience is, or if we're gonna help provide a container for that experience. So, so that it can, they can be self-regulating a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's a really good observation. Yeah, the, the relational piece is so important. It's so important. Yeah, wonderful. That's a great observation, really. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Anything you want to share? All right, well, dive in. Um, because today we want to bring the, together the practices of concentration in a more comprehensive way. So um, I'd like to begin with a practice that Joko taught uh, that has been um, very helpful in my experience and for a lot of uh, our students. It allows us to notice not only what's arising in our present moment experience, but the often overlooked patterns and systems that are created by our perceptions, thoughts, and feelings. So these patterns and systems form our conditioning and in turn are relating to ourselves, each other, and the world. Um, so <clears throat> the way uh, Joko has taught this, and she calls it labeling thoughts, but uh, it's, uh, it's really labeling everything. First, um, on the cushion, we notice that the relationship is we're relating with ourself um, in labeling what's arising in our experience, but then in relating with another person as the object of concentration, and then in relating with a group, family, work, community, and then in relating with the world. Now, all of these things can be brought to mind in meditation, and you can begin to label the associated thoughts, emotions, and so forth. So it's um, simply about bringing yourself or that person or that group uh, or world to mind and focusing your awareness on it and establishing mindfulness of the thoughts and emotions, labeling them as you notice them. So um, this isn't the, there's a common practice where you just say thinking, thinking, you know, sensing, sensing or whatever. This is not that practice. Your labeling has to be quite specific as to what the actual thought or actual feeling is. So, um, so you, might, um, you might notice an emotion feeling anger, then thinking, why is she so mean? Thinking, I should be more compassionate. Feeling hopeless about the situation. Feeling sad. Thinking, what can I do? Um, so don't make any judgments about what's arising and disappearing. Just note it like an interested observer. So I thought we might, um, uh, I think we might want to do a little bit of practice with this. Maybe I can um, do a little bit of guiding um, and you can see what actually arises for you if we sit for just a little bit. Um, and I'll, um, I'll guide this practice a little bit. Um, just cueing you when to shift your awareness from yourself to some other person, um, to uh, then to a group. Uh, could be a group at work, it could be a family dynamic, um, and then the world. And all you're going to do is label the thoughts and the emotions arising and the sensations. Um, and that's, that's all you need to do. You don't, there's nothing complicated about this. Uh, so do you have any questions about it? 
Anybody have any questions about this? Uh, yeah, Ellen, you're muted. So unmute yourself, yeah. Um, so while we're sitting, you'll, you'll call out um, object or something like that, and then we imagine an object? Yeah, just bring something to mind. I'll say, um, first let's focus on yourself, awareness of your breathing, your body, and so forth. Um, and we'll have a you know, couple of minutes of just um, uh, just labeling what's arising uh, in your body, your mind. It's just about the self. Then, um, then I'll just simply say, now bring someone else to mind. Could be anybody. Mm -hmm. you know, could be the postman. Could be grocery store clerk, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be someone you're having a difficulty with or it could be someone that you care about deeply. It doesn't, it's, it's not important for this exercise, who it is. Um, and then I'll say, now bring to mind a group. Um, you know, as I say, it could be, you know, uh, bridge group, it could be uh, Sangha, it could be some other group you're part of, a work group or a family. Um, and, then, uh, and then the world. So we all have opinions and ideas and experiences of the world, right? So does that make sense? Yes, thank you. We'll just do this for a couple of minutes and then we'll, um, we'll see what you might have discovered. Everything that we do is an exploration. So it's discovery. So, um, so if you, uh, for example, um, resist the practice, that's a discovery. Oh, I'm resisting the practice. You know, it's not, it's not something bad or wrong about you. It's what you're discovering. So you discover what you discover. Could be something, could be nothing. Um, so... Uh, you, we just keep an open mind in this kind of practice. So um, does that make sense? And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, give you a, like a general cue, like focus on yourself. And then uh, I'm going to allow some space for you to study and label. So be sure to label quite specifically, not just generally thinking. It's uh, what, what is the actual language of the thought? Uh, so this was, this is the only way that you can actually discover that there are systems and there are relationships among patterns, among um, physical experience, emotions, and thinking. Okay, any other questions? Are you ready? All right, so I'm going to give you a couple of moments just to set, settle into some basic mindfulness and then I'll, um, I'll ask you to uh, direct your awareness. So, um, so that's all you're doing is this direct your awareness. So we have this big wide spacious awareness when we sit in mindfulness and then we begin to um, focus it uh, and then noticing what's arising as we focus it on something. All right, all right. So let's just start by uh, just a little bit of mindful practice, just coming into present moment experience.
us sitting quietly, breathing in and out. Simply allow your awareness to rest on yourself and begin labeling whatever thoughts, feelings, or sensations arise in that awareness. Now turn your awareness towards someone else. Bring someone to mind and simply begin labeling thoughts, feelings, and any sensations you notice.
Now bring your awareness to a group or gathering, something that you're connected with. And begin labeling the thoughts, feelings, sensations that arise in that awareness. Now expand your awareness to consider the world, your world. Begin labeling thoughts, feelings, sensations as they arise in that larger awareness.
relax your awareness completely and bring it back into this body in this place in this moment and we'll have a little bit of time to talk about what that experience was like for you or what you noticed. So, please raise your hand if you have anything you would like to share. Joel and then Kim. The most active part of the meditation for me was the group. Mm. I'm involved with a, a group uh, and involved in a evolving argument with members of this group. Uh, and I was just watching the various currents uh, of a little bit of appreciation for the for the Buddha nature of the people in the group, but then also a yearning to be right and, mm -hmm. and to win the argument. <laughs> and and that, that, that was a wave that came again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it, was, it was interesting to not have to be in the middle of that wave, but to watch it go by, you know, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's it. That's that's what was most up for me. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's great. Uh, Kim and then Ellen. Yeah, labeling, but not uh, having an opinion about about it, or like like this is good, this is bad, like. There's a when I went to the, the big group, there was kind of chaos and people were talking at the same time, I'd imagined. And so I could say there's a label, you know, confusion, chaos, but I have an opinion about that too. You know, mm -hmm. it gives me a certain feeling. So, um, so then you label that feeling. Oh, as how would you label the the feeling of, of chaos no first you label the you recognize that you're you've called up a group that has chaos at the center of it and then you um and then you notice and label what your reactions to that are you have an opinion about it so so would i label it as opinion yeah yeah um, having having a thought that this is uncomfortable or having a thought that i wish this wasn't happening or i see um, having a thought that I don't like this. Um, so, so it's 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 kind of like the meta, the meta label. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're labeling every single thing that comes up in your experience. I see. So that becomes the new experience. That becomes the new experience, right? Okay, I, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Ellen. Um, like Joel, the most active one for me was group. Also. And uh, the group that came to mind was my new Sangha. Wow. And, yeah. And uh, at first it was simply, uh, you know, just a pretty lovely 
feeling of benevolence. And, um, and then I noticed disappointment Ooh. and uh, kind of sat with that for a little bit. And uh, it was, uh, I was making comparisons that are pointless, <laughs> you know? And uh, so that's what I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And so you label those comparisons. You have to be quite specific about it. Um, so well, it was comparison with what that what this group is like versus what Appamata is like. Right. And so then you you label all of those comparisons. Comparison. Oh my gosh. Well, I didn't go that deep into it. <laughs> that's it's that's why it's such an interesting practice because you realize you know after a while you realize oh, I'm only labeling the most crude thoughts and feelings. I'm not even labeling the fleeting ones that you know are sort yeah. of. Yeah. And as you practice with it a little bit more, you're capturing more of those. Um, and the underlying the thoughts that get associated with those underlying emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why it's such a um a really profound practice because as you as you continue to practice, you look at and what are the thoughts I'm systematically not noticing, right? <laughs> Yeah, so you start to become more aware of those. Um, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's really good. And, and you know, as we always say, comparing mind is the last to go. So, mm. yeah, yeah, we, we are, we're constantly engaged in making comparisons, this thing against that thing, this person against that person or what our expectations are or whatever. We're comparing, always comparing something and like, this isn't what I thought it would be. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah so so you know after a while of doing this practice and i would say months or years even you begin to see oh this feeling always leads to this kind of thought and this kind of thought always leads to this kind of thought and there's this kind of spiral that happens and we always end up here you know so i always say a bag lady on the street you know like wherever however it begins it always ends up there somehow um so uh, yeah, so we begin to see the patterns and the patterns are something that we can interrupt. Um, and especially when they're quite damaging or self-destructive or negative, uh, then we have the capacity to say, oh, I know where that pattern goes and that's not really a very helpful direction. Yeah, we can be a little bit more, um, I think of this as being the pilot of your experience rather than the uh, hapless victim of it. Mm. You know, so. Yeah, that concept I really, I had no idea about until I met Flint, that you could actually be the pilot of your experience. So, and be quite intentional about it. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Lori. Yeah. Um, you were talking about patterns at the last, and what I um, noticed that there was a lot of similarity between between all the the different things. So it's like kind of, maybe it's just a mindset I'm in right now that everything is kind of being filtered through the same. Yeah, that's a that's a good observation, actually. Yeah, and then so I I realized that the the feeling sense that's the one that it goes down to this one particular feeling sense and it's not a very positive one you know it's kind of a disease uh-huh yeah so it's interesting 
Yeah. Yeah. And then we have opinions about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, my thoughts would run along the lines of I'm an experienced meditator. I shouldn't be having these dissociated, dissatisfied feelings or, you know, like, and then I just, I'm often running, right? <laughs> I must not be doing this right. I can't be a very good meditator. I would think I would be better by now. You know, like maybe this doesn't work. Maybe it doesn't work for me. It works for everybody else. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's the propancho of thinking, you know, that comes out of that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But I like your, oh, can I oh, go ahead? I, I go like ahead. that that sense of what you said about um, the pilot of your experience. I think that's really important, particularly if you have consistent thoughts and they're going in the wrong direction or maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not enough to just say, this is who I am. Um, that's just, uh, I think, uh, colluding with conditioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We we practice for a purpose and that purpose is liberation. So when we're caught in our conditioning, we're free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Joan. Well, you just touched on what I was asking. Uh, I was just wanting to hear more about our being able to be the pilot of our experience. Mm. Yeah, well, um, we imagine that's what we're doing. Um, we make a to-do list. We, you know, head ourselves into the day, determined to catch up our to-do list and take care of whatever we can take care of. We think we're running our lives, you know. Um, we have a fantasy that we can live forever. We've, you know, like there are all kinds of ways in which we're, we imagine that we're the pilot of our experience, but we're actually constantly then being buffeted by real life happening, right? pandemic unfolds, uh, you know, car gets a flat tire, um, just all kinds of ways in which our illusions about being the pilot of our experience are being, you know, sort of shattered. So um, I'm thinking about this a little bit differently, which is not so much, I'm in charge of my life and I can do what I want. It's not that. It's more like, um, we think things keep happening to us and we're just trying to kind of uh, deal with them as they're happening uh, rather than thinking about the quality of experiencing, which is a different thing from a to-do list, right? Just the quality of experiencing we're establishing for ourselves. So in practice, we sit, we're establishing a certain quality of experience that comes out of stillness and silence and that enables us to meet what is arising um, as a kind of um, self-actualizing system. So that's quite different from our normal way of trying to manipulate our experience. We're trying to manipulate it at, at the external level, um, arrange things at the external level, so they're comfortable for us internally, but that's not how it works. Life doesn't work like that. 
So to be the pilot of one's own experience is like Maria was talking about when uh, someone else is angry, you can get caught up in that then, right? And then you're kind of in this, what in the world of anger, like that's what you're in that universe, right? Or um, being the pilot of your own experience, you can choose not to get caught in that undertow, right? Um, and to stay present in a different way than probably our conditioning has taught us to do or um, shaped us to do. And this is truly a radical act. When we're not um, bound by our conditioning, we're free. And when we're free, we can direct our awareness and our activity and our energies in ways that come straight out of the source of in us, the creative energy, uh, the creative intelligence of the universe, as Longchenpa puts it. That's entirely different, but it is, you do have to be a pilot of that energy, right? Um, so that it's, uh, um, it's manifesting itself in accord in alignment with your aspiration. So that's quite different than our egoic sense of I've got a lot to do, I've got to get this done, I have to make something of myself, I have to, you know, like make good use of this life because life is short, you know, all of the ways in which we get ourselves going uh, that are basically egoic or self-making. Sometimes I, I think of it more as um, self-oriented rather than egoic because egoic um, uh, people often um, sort of um, experience connotations of selfishness in that. It doesn't mean that, it just means oriented towards the self or um, engaged in the work of building a self. Um, so, and that's not necessarily uh, something, some phony persona or something that we're trying to put up to fool other people. It's just how we feel ourselves becoming a person um, and what we hold as um, who we are. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, so sometimes I'll just call it being self-oriented. Sometimes our awareness is other-oriented. Sometimes it's self-oriented. Um, and our issue is really um, more how it gets stuck. It gets stuck on the self and can't consider the other or it gets stuck on the other and can't take care of the self. Um, so the, um, the fixations are what cause the problem, not the fact that we're attending to one thing or the other or our awareness is on one thing or the other. So when it's free to move, we can recognize I need some self-care, I need some time down, or I need to be connected with other people right now. I'm feeling a little lost and lonely. So, um, so then we, our, our awareness is free to move internally and externally. So, but until we start labeling our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations, um, we are not really aware of that uh, capacity of awareness. And so from that standpoint, we're sort of jerked around either by external events or by our internal conditioning or by some connection between the two. So we don't want to be jerked around and we don't want to be prisoners of our, um, of our conditioning which has served us well up to a certain point, but, uh, but certainly also confines us and constrains us <clears throat> in ways that 
prevent us from realizing our full potential and capacities. Joel? To first that I, oh, thank you. Um, I'd like to make an observation, which is that uh, one of the first things I learned from you and that I heard in the story of your early meeting with, uh, with Joko was that telling a story about how you are a failure is uh, self-directed. It's not, it's not by the usual sense egoic since you're trying to own up to your own failings, but it is, but it, but it is self-directed uh, in a way that gets very, very, very sticky, at yeah. least for me, and uh, can be, you know, like, it, it, it's my number one false refuge, I would say. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. where, I, where I go to. Uh, yeah. But uh, the question that I had uh, uh, is, um, it seems like Joko's thought labeling process that in from what I've read in her work and in the penumbra of people around her is is exactly about breaking the enchantment of conditioning so that you can recognize oh this is not me this is a story that I'm telling myself etc uh, and uh, I have some freedom here uh, that, that seems to come directly from Joko's technique so I was very curious when you said that you didn't even recognize this until you heard it from Flint. Can I, can, how, what, what, what did Flint bring that was different? I think a kind of um, adventurous capacity to create uh, desirable or beautiful experiences. Ah. So um, in just labeling thoughts, you might not get that impression. It's just what's arising, what's arising, what's arising. Um, and you realize that the thoughts are just thoughts. So you, there is some freedom in that, but that freedom doesn't necessarily mean you become the author of your own narrative, so to speak, you know, that you recognize that you have the capacity actually to fundamentally create new kinds of experiences that there it's not just things that are happening to you. So, you know, we would be somewhere and he would say, there's a little museum around the corner. Let's see what, you know, what's in the little museum or, uh, you know, he always had a sense of um, uh, discovery, right? Of new experiences that could be intentional. Mm -hmm. That wasn't just, accidental, you know, um, right. but actually was intentional. And that you could set an intention to have beautiful experiences or you could set an intention to have meaningful experiences. That um, thought had never crossed my mind. Okay, okay, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful explanation. Yeah. And, and I, have, I have also seen this in Flint's teaching and in yours. Uh, and and I, it, it, just to add on to what I started with, that the, that the recognizing the story can, for someone like me, turn into another uh, self-directed uh, focus project. Uh, because as you were saying with, with Laurie, you know, as you, go, as you go on the path, new thoughts will arise that are, that are confirming or disconfirming or, or something. But, it, but the focus is always in, you know, up in here. 
uh, and doesn't allow for the possibility of joy in anything else. Right. Uh, or, or do, you know, within the process, it's not a given factor, although it, it is a given factor in our lives. And to be able to recognize that is a, is a great gift. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you definitely want to be um, also labeling feelings that are arising, emotion states that are arising, physical sensations that are arising. Um, because often those things are associated. So we'll have a physical sensation and then some thoughts get us attached to it. And then we're often running from there even. Um, so, and it can go the other way around too. You know, you have a thought and it gives you a chill, right? Um, so those relationships um, are discoverable um, when we have the capacity to observe like a an anthropologist might observe or a scientist might observe, oh, this arising, oh, this arising. And you begin to see um, the more subtle backstory of judging what's arising, right? Um, and, and you realize how caught up we are in constantly, uh, constantly observing in a, from a particular stance, observing for what's wrong of what I'm doing badly, what I, never get right, what other people seem to be able to manage, but I always screw up or, you know, like. Right, and, th and that can turn into an infinite chain. Absolutely. You know, infinite. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Infinite regress, you know, and now I'm doing that again, you know, like <laughs> now I'm judging. <laughs> well, I, I'm also connecting it with something that Laurie talks about quite a bit. And that is, it's a really good idea to go outside and, and, uh, enjoy the sky and the air and the trees and, and everything that's and the songs of the birds and right. everything that's around us. Yeah. And the hum of the city, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it, and you can um, you can actually you know sort of uh, tweak yourself by saying, okay, this sunset is a four. I've seen sunsets that were eights, <laughs> nines even, but this is just a four. You know, this, this, this tree, this tree, look how uh, asymmetrical it is. This is really, this is bad, <laughs> right? And you have to laugh at yourself, right? Because we're, we're, we're completely capable of doing that. But the truth is we're constantly doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. Constantly judging things that don't need any judgment, including ourselves. So Maria. Well, I was going to say that that's why we like nature because it just is what it is. But now you've just proven that we can even manipulate that and do things with that. Because what I was going to say is, is I, I noticed that I've worked very closely with people with mania and psychosis and, and how I have to keep myself centered so that you don't get carried away with their extremeness, their extreme anxiety, their immediacy, their need, their urge, sense of urgency where everything is so urgent. And I've noticed how my mum and sister, when one gets ill, we have to keep them apart because if they're next to each other, one of them catches the mania. They literally catch the, the anxiety, the urgency, they, they can't find their own center in that and they're, they're very much sort of immersed in each other so you have to keep them apart and I think mania is a great example of 
of how like I've worked in mental health hospitals with people with mania and how keeping them apart when, when they're in that state of mania, because as soon as they get together, it's like a fire lighting in the other one yeah. and the other one begins to experience the exact same thoughts and they catch the, the urgency and they, and they don't have a way of, and, and that's extreme, but it's what we do on a different level where we catch everybody else's energies and feelings and sense of urgency we might not become manic or get into that state but we're still on a level you could even class it as a kind of neurosis or illness can't you where you're catching somebody else's feelings and thoughts they're not your own and yet they feel like your own and you feel like it's your problem it's your urgency and we can struggle to really stay in our own centre. And I was going to say, that's why we love nature, because it is we go out into nature <laughs> to get that calmness, because it is just what it is. But like you said, we can even judge that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Um, and we do it, we're doing it continuously sort of below the radar, you know. Um, it's a little too windy today, you know, like yesterday was calmer. Yesterday was better because it was not so windy. We're just, it's just, you know, like continuous, right? Um, it's like everything is personal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, um, and this is why practice is absolutely essential um, so that we can see what we're up to for one thing and, uh, and so that we aren't caught uh, ir irretrievably in it. Okay, so labeling the thoughts, labeling the feelings, labeling sensations, a very, um, a very instructive practice but it is one that you have to do a little bit long-term in order to recognize, start to recognize patterns uh, and uh, see systems of thought and the way that they operate. Um, not because they're wrong. That, that's not, the point is not to say all, you know, these systems are wrong. The point is to recognize the ways that they can be a source of suffering for yourself and for others and to be free. Um, not to be free without them, to be free in right in the midst of them. So, uh, so that it's not that we're struggling to not have certain thoughts, but that we recognize, oh, that's a thought. You know, I could kill her. That's a thought. You know, it's not a murder intent. It's a thought. <laughs> and so, um, to be able to distinguish that's very important. All right. Um, Another, uh, of course, uh, form of very comprehensive concentration practice is found in the Buddha's original teachings uh, in the Satipatthana and Anapanasati suttas. We've taught about these many times, but this is a training curriculum directly from the Buddha. So that's what makes it useful. Uh, the two are very similar in some ways, that, but the Satipatthana is more elaborated. It has much more emphasis on meditating on the repulsiveness of the body, stages of death and dying. So this was no doubt a wake up call to young heedless monks, but Ananda became alarmed that the monks were mutilating themselves and even committing suicide. And he told the Buddha that the contemplations on death and repulsiveness of the body were kind of having a dire effect on the Sangha. So the Buddha was alarmed. He immediately gave a Dharma talk teaching that meditation should be conducive to happiness and joy, not harm. Uh, but then I think he must have realized the curriculum needed revision, and, and that's how we received the Anapanasati Sutta teaching. So um, it is a practice, a rich and powerful teaching that begins with simple breathing and ultimately leads to full awakening. Um, so 
I'm gonna, uh, this, this sutra is more uh, rich and complex than the sort of um, condensed summary version we've, we've taught. Um, I'm going to um, uh, give you a little bit of a sense of that here. Uh, I think I can call it up and share it with you so you get a little bit of a sense of it. Um, hold on here. Um, I want to make sure that I don't give you the wrong thing. You can see this now. Uh, okay, I just have to get rid of the. I have to get rid of the extra things we don't need. All right, there we go. Now I think I can share this. This translation. I'm going to put this in the handout, so you don't need to worry too much about it. But I want to show you how. Uh, yeah, okay. Can you see this as Anapana Sati Sutta? Mindfulness of breathing? Everybody can see this? Um, this is the, the stories of, uh, in these original Pali Canon suttas often begin, thus I have heard, I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern Monastery, the palace of Nigaro's mother, together with many well-known elder disciples. So then there's a guest list, uh, some of the elder disciples, um, and the elder monks were teaching and instructing uh, the younger monks or newer monks. Um, some were teaching 10 monks, some were teaching 20 monks. Um, and so they were all uh, discerning grand successive distinctions. So, um, the Buddha was seated in the open area, surrounded by the Sangha of monks. They've all had their midday meal and the Buddha would open things up and he decides um, he's going to address them. So oftentimes his, these sutras begin with a question from a disciple, but this, he's just um, offering this teaching, um, which is this uh, new curriculum, the revised curriculum of the Anapanasati Sutta. And he's um, encouraging them. He says, I'm content with this practice. I'm content at heart with this practice. So arouse even more intense persistence for the attaining of the as yet unattained, the reaching of the as yet unreached, the realization of the as yet unrealized. I will remain right here at Savati for another month through the water lily month, the fourth month of the rains. So in, in, in other words, and you'll have a chance to ask questions later. Um, and so um, they were very happy um, and they became more persistent in their efforts. And then, um, uh, and then he said, um, the next on the next occasion, this assembly is free from idle chatter, devoid of idle chatter and is established on pure heartwood, such as the Sangha of monks, such as this assembly, the sort of assembly that is deserving of gifts deserving of hospitality, deserving of offerings, deserving of respect, an incomparable field of merit for the world, such as this Sangha of monks, such is this assembly. And so he goes on to say, um, uh, in the Sangha, there are monks who are arhants, there are monks who 
um, are due to arise spontaneously in the pure abodes and um, the, the qualities of all of these um, marvelous monks who are uh, patiently practicing together. Um, and um, in this Sangha of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to mindfulness of in and out breathing. So he says, mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued is of great fruit, of great benefit. Mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued brings the four establishings of mindfulness to their cultivate culmination. The four establishings of mindfulness when developed and pursued bring the seven factors for awakening to their culmination. The seven factors for awakening when developed and pursued bring clear knowledge and release to their culmination. So then he teaches the mindfulness of in and out breathing. And you can see this is uh, what we have uh, summarized in our, um, in our short form. But then he talks about the four establishings of mindfulness um, and using the breath to establish these four foundations of mindfulness. Then he talks about the seven factors for awakening and how to use breathing to establish and mindfulness to establish um, these seven factors for awakening. And then he talks about clear knowing and release, which is the ultimate. Um, how are the seven factors for awakening developed and pursued so as to bring clear knowing and release to their culmination? There is the case where a monk develops mindfulness as a factor of awakening dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, resulting in relinquishment. He develops analysis of qualities as a factor to awakening. So he lists all the seven factors and shows how ultimately it results in a relinquishment, meaning just releasing everything. Um, and this is what the Blessed One said. So this is the, and there's a, some uh, notes here. Uh, this translation is, um, is by Thanissaro Bhikkhu, a much revered um, teacher in the Theravadan tradition. So the, um, so the preliminaries are, how is mindfulness of in and out breathing developed and pursued so as to be a great fruit, a great benefit? There is a case where a monk having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree or to an empty building sits down folding his legs crosswise, holding his body erect. So you need a place where you won't be bothered basically, that's what the Buddha is saying. Place in nature is great. Um, but if you can find a space, a room or a space where you won't be bothered and distracted, um, that, that's conducive to this practice and establishing mindfulness to the four. So this is interesting because the note says um, it's been translated, that's been understood as um, uh, uh, the tip of the nose or the sign of the mouth. But the term appears uh, as kind of a stock phrase describing a person engaged in meditation, even for themes that have nothing to do with the body at all. So it's likely that it's um, used in an idiomatic sense that mindfulness is placed face to face with this object or that it's made prominent, which is how he translated it, Thanissaro. So um, always mindful, he breathes in, mindfully breathes out, um, breathing in long, he discerns I'm breathing in long or breathing out long, he discerns I'm breathing out long. So this is the beginning. Um, it's just establishing uh, mindfulness of the breathing and then he begins the training. 
breathing in short, he discerns, I'm breathing in short. Then, then he trains himself. This is the training. I will breathe in sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself, I will breathe out sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself, I will breathe in calming bodily fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe out calming bodily fabrication. That is all of, all of the bodily activity and sensations and uh, so on. So it goes on. Um, and, uh, and so this is the full sutra, um, Anapanasati Sutta. So I'll put this up and you can, you can read the full sutta. What we've done is um, created a kind of um, guide uh, that is uh, a sort of summary of the sutra. It doesn't go into the seven factors of mindfulness. It's really, um, it's really just intended to uh, be a base for regular everyday practice. So I'm going to um, share this with you. Some of you have seen this before. So let me um, share this with you. Uh, okay. So, it be, so it's divided into four main parts, um, body, feeling, uh, mind, and dharmas. So it begins with the breath. And this is, again, this is preliminary to training. And sometimes um, the, in the Buddha's teachings, he'll say, and setting aside grief and longing for the world. You begin your practice by setting aside grief and longing for the world. So breathing in long, one understands, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one understands, I breathe out long. So when Analeo teaches this, which I think is great, um, these are not separate practices that you do at separate. You do the whole uh, comprehensive set of these in one practice. And I usually um, devote three breaths to each step. Um, and so it begins with long breaths which you take intentionally. I breathe in long, you breathe three deep breaths is basically what we're doing at the beginning. Then it says breathing in short. All that means is you're returning to natural breathing, not taking these deep, deep, long breaths. You're just gonna to return to natural breathing, breathing in short, one understands, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one understands, I breathe out short. One trains, now we're beginning training. One trains. Experiencing the whole body, I shall breathe in. One trains. Experiencing the whole body, I shall breathe out. I find that three breaths is necessary just to get oriented to that, right? Um, and the first one is just like a transition into that. Uh, and then the middle one is sort of getting myself established. And the third one is actually experiencing it. One trains. <clears throat> Calming bodily activity, I shall breathe in. One trains calming bodily activity, I shall breathe out. So I think of this like the mother placing her hand on the restless child who's in bed, you know, settling down. And the, this calming is just this calming effect of this, uh, of this warm connection. So then you continue three more breaths. Um, you're going to continue one trains experiencing joy, I shall breathe in. One trains experiencing joy, I shall breathe out. Now I should point out here that there are times when it's very difficult for me to summon up the experiencing of joy. 
Um, and uh, other people may experience that also. It's perfectly fine to stay in that place um, and to continue breathing in and breathing out as you access either some joy in the past or some joy you anticipate in the future, or just what is that experience really, that effervescent feeling of joy. Um, so maybe you have to go back to childhood to when you're running around in the grass or something to recall the experience of joy, but that's what we're trying to do is access that. Um, the Buddha is very clear that meditation should be conducive to joy and that joy is a factor in awakening. So, um, so this is just a little practice intended to connect us with that joy. Um, and so I, you know, if I need to, I'll just stay there as many breaths as until I access that sort of effervescent, free, liberated feeling of joy. Um, and sometimes it kind of comes from the form of my little granddaughter, and sometimes it comes in the form of my little dog, and sometimes it's just arising by itself spontaneously um, because there's great joy in practice. Now, here we are, we're practicing. So then one trains experiencing happiness, I shall breathe in. Uh, one trains experiencing happiness, I shall breathe out. And happiness is uh, a kind of widening of joy into this kind of uh, ease. And um, it's not quite so effervescent. It's more sort of, sort of even. Um, and it's just general happiness. Um, here we are. We're alive. We're breathing. We should be happy, right? Um, so then one trains experiencing mental activity because almost immediately your mind starts kicking in, right? Um, am I doing this right? I'm not really sure, you know, I say, hey, am I experiencing happiness? Am I not experiencing happiness? I don't know, you know. So experiencing mental activity, I shall breathe in. One trains experiencing mental activity, I shall breathe out. Um, if you are not experiencing mental activity, perhaps you're dead, you should check and make sure. One trains calming mental activity, I shall breathe in. One trains calming mental activity, I shall breathe out. And it's just this sense of calm. Uh, and that allows us to drop below the level of mental activity to experience the mind. Experiencing the mind, I shall breathe in. One trains experiencing the mind, I shall breathe out. And I love this, that every refrain begins with one trains. We're in training, we're training ourselves. Um, experiencing the mind I shall breathe out. So we're accessing the mind under all the thinking, all the waves of thought, this deeper mind. Um, and one trains gladdening the mind I shall breathe in. One trains gladdening the mind I shall breathe out. So we're uh, illuminating the mind with gladness. Uh, one trains concentrating the mind I shall breathe in. One trains concentrating the mind, I shall breathe out. And that concentration is not bringing things into a focus like that. Um, it's a wholeness so that the mind is whole and not bits and pieces of it scattered all over the place. It's brought into wholeness. Concentrating the mind, I shall breathe out. One trains liberating the mind, I shall breathe in. One trains liberating the mind, I shall breathe out. At this point, there's a turn. Um, and the turn is from uh, this activity um, to uh, a contemplation. So we have um, accessed the mind, we've settled the body, 
we've experienced gladness and we've settled mental activity. We've experienced the mind, gladdened the mind, concentrated the mind and liberated the mind so that it can be turned towards this contemplation. This is not a state to achieve just for its own sake. It is actually so that we can turn it toward investigation of the dharmas. So the four that are mentioned here are only some of the dharmas that could be a source of contemplation, but one trains contemplating impermanence I shall breathe in. One trains contemplating impermanence I shall breathe out. And uh, I should point out that impermanence is not just the going away of things. It's also the arising of things, right? And the constant flow of that arising, sustaining and disappearing. So uh, contemplating impermanence I shall breathe in. And then having uh, that contemplation, then one turns to contemplating dispassion I shall breathe in. One trains contemplating dispassion I shall breathe out. So um, dispassion is freedom from the binding forces of emotions. Um, it's not uh, some sort of stoicism or it's not uncaring. It's freedom from uh, afflictive emotions specifically. Contemplating dispassion, I shall breathe out. So it's not um, intended to turn you into some sort of a stump, uh, but this uh, openness that is uh, not, uh, not caught. Then contemplating cessation, I say the cessation of suffering, I shall breathe in. One trains contemplating cessation, I shall breathe out. And then one shifts to contemplating letting go, I shall breathe in. One trains contemplating letting go, I shall breathe out. So um, this, this whole last set of four um, uh, contemplations uh, is encapsulated in the last mantra in the Heart Sutra. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha, which, as Flint points out, Kobanchino taught, uh, actually means falling apart, falling apart, falling completely apart. And I think that's a very lovely way to think about it because sometimes taught as going beyond, going beyond, and which seems like some heroic endeavor, but, um, but it's everything is impermanent. Everything, um, you know, uh, everything is actually free of our uh, emotion states and thoughts about it. And um, everything ultimately ceases, everything that arises. And, and I can let go of all of that, so. So, the, um, so there's uh, uh, some little condensed verses at the end, breathing in the body relaxes, breathing out the body is free. Breathing in the heart opens, breathing out the heart is free. Breathing in the mind quiets, breathing out the mind is free. Breathing in I awaken, breathing out I am free. So this is the liberating, the liberating verses. Um, and I, um, I created these so that you would have something you could actually memorize and use in moments of stress or upset, um, because this will be very uh, reorienting for you. Um, okay, does that make sense? 
Um, and Analeo, you know, it's often taught in separate things. Like you're, you're going to study um, um, the uh, uh, meditation on breathing for six months. And that's as far as you're going to go. In many practices, they've broken up all of these teachings. But Analeo argues that they should be done as a coherent whole every time. Um, and I find that if I do three breaths for each of these, it ultimately takes about 15 minutes. It drops you into a very still, quiet place. So if you're doing a half hour meditation, you're now gonna have about 15 minutes of, of real quiet. And that's what we are preparing the mind for, is that. Um, so, uh, so this is often taught as a preliminary to open awareness um, in training programs. Uh, it's about really about quieting the mind and making the mind um, malleable and bright and lucid and aware. So, so, um, so how is this practice and training relational since you're basically focusing, contemplating, training, you know? Um, so I, the way I think about it is let's imagine you had this clear, bright, lucid and concentrated mind when you're relating with yourself or with another person or with a group or with the world. How do you think that might affect the process of relating? The training is not so that you can experience some exalted state, but so that you can use this lucid, clear awareness to investigate the Dharma and be alive in your present situation and the world and for the people in your life, which is um, more what we'll explore next week is investigation of the Dharmas. So um, does that make sense to people? And I'm gonna uh, stop this share and um, see if you have any questions about any of this so far. Um, oops, hold on here. I just did something wrong. I think Kim had his hand okay. up first and then Richie. Okay, and then Kim and then Richie and then Lori. Okay, Kim. Well, just the connection that I see to the relational part is that um, imagining that we don't have any boundaries. Right. That, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, it's one. It's you know, it's kind of interesting to realize that you are breathing with all living beings together with all living beings, breathing in and breathing out plants, animals, all living beings are breathing. Not as a fixed entity. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's just the one breath and we're sharing it. Yeah, so Richie. Bit about the Dharma categories. I was, I think I've asked you this before and um, it's just when we're on that stage, are we thinking about impermanence, thinking about dispassion, cessation, renunciation, or are we, you said that it can be a place where we're not thinking when you come. It's just contemplation. So, um, <clears throat> and what you realize is, oh, we're just calming the mental activity. We're not stopping any mental activity. So our minds are going to continue to, um, you know, um, I think address or meet this question of impermanence. But but even the the thinking is impermanent, right? The thoughts are impermanent. So they become just woven into the fabric of this contemplation of all of our human experience is impermanent and everything that we know is impermanent. Yeah, 
So, um, so it's not to try and stop that, but not to get caught up in it, um, but to realize it in an embodied way um, and a heartfelt way too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lori? Outs. I somehow missed that. Missed what? Where they are, the handouts. Where do we find them? I'll, they'll be on the page, on the class page. Okay, and that is located? On the uh, website. Um, if you click on teachings, okay, then you'll see um, a list, a, a link, uh, Foundations of Zen. This oh. is in the series. This is, uh, this is in that Foundations of Zen 13. It's the last one. Okay. And then that'll take you to the web page, um, which has tons of resources, all of the video and audio links, um, uh, all of the handouts for all the classes, all my class notes, everything's on that web page. Oh, great. I didn't, didn't know about that page. Yeah, yeah. I missed that. Okay, great. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Joel, did you have something? You had your hand raised there for a second. That we are breathing with. Thank you. Maria, to the point that we are breathing with all beings, just that I've experienced multiple times in a way that seemed kind of freeing for me that I'm not doing the breathing. It's a, it's a natural process that's arising, arising that I share, that yeah. I share with all beings, you know, uh, and that the, the breathing is creating me, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting to me that we have this practice of awareness of breathing at a time when there's a global pandemic, which is afflicting people's breathing. And sometimes I think about how fortunate it is to be able to breathe with such ease when you're well, right? And we don't even think about that. We don't even think, oh, you know, this is, uh, this is a gift to have ease in our breathing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so uh, yeah it's just it has been really been striking me how uh, remarkable it is that this pandemic is a pandemic that's respiratory I, I had childhood asthma and was and was hospitalized many times so the yeah. awareness of difficulty in breathing has been with me for as long as I can remember yeah and sometimes when people practice this awareness of breathing, they become caught in this kind of a struggle. Um, and, uh, and a lot of thoughts and associations get attached to it uh, and they worry about it and they um, have difficulty with this practice. So it's not, uh, this is not an assignment. It's really more like now you understand this practice a little bit. As you practice it, you'll learn more about it. Um, and, uh, and it's another resource for you. It's not uh, required. It's just another resource in your practice path. It may be that for a time you have to practice mindfulness and walking or, um, or you know, concentration on a pebble or a flower. Um, there, uh, the reason I wanted to teach this class is so that people would understand each of these practices well enough to know when for their own benefit um, they might take up a particular practice. 
Um, it's always most helpful to work with a teacher. And if you have a question about a certain practice, do you think it'd be useful for me to work with, you know, concentration practices or meta practices? By all means, if you have access to a teacher, um, check that out. But if you're on your own, um, you may find yourself in a hotel room or, you know, in the middle of a debate with a family member and you have these resources to draw on as a way to um, center yourself and be grounded and present in the way that you hope to be. So the idea is really not so that you have a bunch of uh, tricks up your sleeve so much as in this, in relationship with this situation I'm in right now, um, is there something I can draw on that will support me and uh, nourish me in, in su sustaining my aspiration, basically. So, so uh, okay, any other questions about any of that? Okay, um, another form of concentration that comes from our Soto practice, um, not so much uh, from the Theravadan side of things, um, is uh, one of the um, practices that we use is koans. So I want to give you a very brief introduction today uh, to koan practice, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in a little bit more next week. Um, with that practice. Um, let's see, hold on here. Uh, when we get into investigation of dharmas. So in Soto Zen, uh, koans are stories, um, teachings that are uh, intended not for uh, this kind of very focused concentration that we've been looking at, um, so much as uh, uh, kind of um, awareness we can return to. So um, I think the best thing to do is to give you a little bit of a taste of how uh, koans have been introduced in a couple of very important texts that we like to use. The first one is the Book of Serenity, which is the classic collection of koans that's used in Soto Zen. And the translation we use is by Thomas Cleary. So in the introduction, he says, the Book of Serenity is a classic text of Chan Zen Buddhism, a vehicle of ancient knowledge said to go back to time immemorial and to have been originally transmitted from mind to mind. The continuity of Zen transmission was fostered by periodic revisions and renewals in a body of special techniques and the knowledge subtending them. Many of these techniques are encoded in the Book of Serenity and the use of this kind of literature to help elicit certain perceptions is itself one of these techniques. So the language is itself uh, part of the technique. The branch of ancient tradition that came to be known as Zen is customarily traced back in Chinese history to the late fifth and early sixth centuries and was approaching the end of its third overt major phase in China when the Book of Serenity was compiled. So in the Book of the Serenity, which some of you have uh, already uh, worked with a little bit, um, each koan has a kind of a format, a structure. There's an introduction by one song, generally alluding to particular perspectives, frames of mind, patterns of thought and action. Then there's the case, what's called the case. Um, and koan or gongan in uh, Chinese um, really means a public case. It would be 
um, like um, some so, some authority would post uh, um, uh, uh, some policy uh, publicly, and that would be a public case. Um, so the case from Chan lore or Buddhist scripture, a saying or anecdote illustrating some aspect or aspects of Chan awareness and practice. Then a commentary by Wansong expounding upon the case. These commentaries are often even more confusing and baffling than the case itself. And then a verse by Tian Tong reflecting the pattern of the case in poetic form, also often baffling and perplexing. And then a commentary by Wansong on the verse, also baffling and perplexing. So, but that's the basic structure. I was very taken with uh, Guo Gu's book, Passing Through the Gateless Barrier, because as a Chinese um, teacher, Chan teacher, um, he has insight into the context of some of these koans that really help clarify them. They're not um, intentionally baffling, uh, but there are some aspects of Chinese culture that are woven into them that are not apparent to us. And he's really good at unpacking that. So in the Chinese tradition, gongan is the term that later became koan in Japanese. And so Guogu says, gongan collections are more than just books. As a method of spiritual cultivation, gongans are unique in the whole of Buddhism and all the history of human development for that matter. There's really nothing like them. Before I explain how to use gongan as methods of practice, it's important to keep in mind that they come from everyday life situations and are meant to be engaged with. Thus, gongans cannot be studied or learned or analyzed. Gongans cannot be studied or learned or analyzed. Discursive explanations of and intellectual speculations about life are not life. None of the gongans tell you what life is. They only put a spotlight on different aspects of life. The purpose is to show that all situations in life, its ups and downs, are opportunities to awaken to your true nature. To many people, they seem absurd, upside down. This is because many people live their lives in an upside down way, bound by their own rational thinking, concepts, and proliferation of notions about the world, which they take as the world. Thus, gongans turn us right side up and free us from our own bondage. To engage in gongan practice then is to use the cases as a method to investigate your own life and what it means to live according to your true nature. This engagement is called investigating Chan. Investigation here does not mean thinking. Thinking is always dualistic and discriminatory and has the tendency to reify things as real and unchanging. Ordinary people's thinking is a form of self-grasping. Thinking is by nature self-referential. Because it is self-referential and filtered through words and language, it also reifies whatever people experience as out there, real, and separate. Being diluted by the thinking process, a sense of self and other come into being, and people are forever alienated from their experience. This is not to say that thoughts themselves are the problem. The problem is the tendency to take the concept of a thing to be the thing itself. Because of this delusion, attachment arises and suffering follows. 
to investigate Chan is to use poison against poison, to use a gong on as a springboard to realize that which lies before words, language and concepts arise, your true nature, which can never be defined or reified or grasped. Therefore, whatever concept you come up with about a gong on is just another concept. It is not freedom. Gongans are not puzzles or problems to be solved. There's nothing to solve. The stories in gongans defy logic and force the discriminating logical mind to become stuck, turning words, language, and concepts on their head, and thereby shattering self-grasping so practitioners can wake up to who they truly are. So the point is not to solve them. Use the gongan to dissolve your self-referentiality or any fixation. So they're kind of a pry bar, right? Um, and so um, I know we're coming to the end of our time and I'm gonna leave you with this, um, with this one koan, I'll read it to you, um, just to play with over this next week in that way. Um, and it's called Dijon Planting the Fields. I've taught on this koan before and I like it because I think it feels accessible at first and then it starts really working on you. So the introduction, scholars plow with the pen, orators plow with the tongue. We patch-robed mendicants lazily watch a white ox on open ground, not paying attention to the rootless auspicious grass. How to pass the days. The case, Dijong asks Shushan, where do you come from? Shushan said, from the South. Dijong said, how is Buddhism in the South these days? Shushan said, there's extensive discussion. Dijong said, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? Shushan said, what can you do about the world? Dijong said, what do you call the world? So there's some notes there, the reference to the white ox, which might be baffling, a little bit baffling. So there's uh, some notes about that, um, that image. So, um, so I'm going to um, put this on the website on the handouts for class four. And um, I hope you have a wonderful week uh, playing with this koan. Uh, our practice of Zen is like a serious play. Um, and so, that kind of play that is uh, life affirming, and yet it's also joyful and engaging, um, but doesn't have any outcome, purpose, or um, a kind of product as a result. So um, it's like kids playing, serious play. All right, have a wonderful week. I will see you next time.